Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. Despite our recent cold temperatures, spring is really just around the corner. Today you'll hear a lot about one of the most beloved harbingers of spring, the honeybee. First, a COVID update. We've been hearing a lot about new variants of the coronavirus and fears that these may be more deadly or that the new vaccines may not protect against them. Let's delve into just what a variant is and what concerns are and are not warranted. First, just what is a variant? To define this, I have to start by giving you a primer on viruses. Viruses, like other living creatures, rely on a set of genetic instructions that allow them to build their structures and pursue their viral lives. Unlike most other living creatures, viruses lack the cellular infrastructure to conduct these activities on their own. But when a virus gets inside a host cell, in the case of the COVID virus, that's one of our respiratory cells, it can hijack that cell's equipment to make more viruses. This is called viral replication. During replication, the genetic instructions of the virus are copied. Imagine copying a document of about a thousand words by typing it. If you're like me, there'll be a lot of typos in the copy. Viruses do better than that, but they still get errors in the genetic code that is copied. These errors are called mutations. A mutation can make the virus better or worse at infecting you, or it may have no effect at all. It just depends on the exact change. For example, when you're typing a copy, if you put in an extra space, no one might notice it. On the other hand, if you type B-A-N when the original said B-A-G, it could have a big impact on the meaning of the copy. Scientists estimate that a mutation that makes the virus better at infecting us is happening globally once every 10 days. And of course, these are the ones popping up in the new variants that we're concerned about. A common fear is that a variant virus may be more virulent, that is, cause more severe disease and host death. Keep in mind that a virus that is more virulent would probably reduce contact between infected individuals because they would be sicker, thus limiting the opportunity for that virus to get passed along. The more a virus is passed between hosts or transmitted, the more it spreads. It's the viruses that are good at spreading that are going to be the ones we have to worry about. Because the new variants that were identified first in the UK and South Africa are spreading in those areas, we can conclude that they are either better at infecting people or causing their hosts to shed more viruses to infect others, or both. We don't yet know which of these is the case for those new variants. And people are worried that vaccination won't protect them against the new variants. But remember, these variants have changes in the so-called spike protein, which is the latch on the outside of the virus that lets it attach and enter your cells. Current vaccines all act against the older version of that spike, but it's still a recognizable spike even in the variants. It just looks a little bit different to your immune system, so more virus can sneak through and get into cells. The result is that people may get milder infections, but for the most part, they still have some protection. Reducing the number of cases and the severity of cases means there's less opportunity for the virus to make more changes in its genome, which could result in more infections down the road. 
Bottom line, all the things we've been doing to prevent infection, like mask wearing and ventilation, are still good options. Combined with vaccination, these strategies can reduce the ability of the coronavirus to come up with further variants. Professor Mike Breed has been studying social insects, including honeybees and ants, for decades at CU here in Boulder. I spoke with him earlier this month about the fascinating biology of these important pollinators. We also discussed some of the problems facing honeybees and what we can do to help protect them. Welcome to the show, Mike. It's really a delight to be able to talk to you finally about bees. And I know that our listeners are really interested in bees. And now that the days are getting longer and spring will probably be just around the corner and we're thinking about flowers and birds and bees, this seems like an opportune time to pick your brain about bees. Yeah, this is, it's actually the perfect time of year to start thinking about bees. The uh, bees in the hive in my backyard are um, kind of thinking about getting going. They'll be uh, some trees like elms and maples that begin to put out pollen surprisingly soon. And so the, the bees are going to, they're, they're going to get going. And I, you know, you might not, might not think of bees flying around so much in the wintertime, but really any warm day, any day when it's up in the fifties, they're going to be out and about. So those bees from the hive, say in your backyard, they'll go out and collect pollen this early in the year. Is that correct? Yeah, as, as soon as those trees start to, to put out pollen, and it's not something, you know, if you're not used to looking, looking up at the elms or the maples and thinking, oh, they're, the, those things up there aren't just big buds. They're, those are actually flowers that the, the trees put out um, be, before they leaf before they leaf out. Um, uh, and then you start looking closely, like I said, on a warm day, you'll see bees up there collecting the pollen, even though those trees are basically wind pollinated. Uh, the bees still take advantage of those food sources. So they're kind of opportunistic. And that leads me into uh, a related question. I think that the basic biology of bees is so fascinating. They have a really unusual um, reproductive uh, ability and characteristics. So maybe we can talk kind of briefly about that because that leads us into just how amazing they are. Sure. So so this this time of year, um, queen hasn't been laying eggs since October or early November. But this time of year, she's going to she's going to start laying eggs in the colony. And the, the, those eggs will, um, once they're laid, take a few weeks to develop into adult uh, worker bees and also into to drones. Um, uh, and then, so there'll be a, a larger workforce in the colony uh, in a few weeks. And uh, then a little bit later in spring, so here it's like early early April. You start getting um, 
a lot of, you know, kind of what we think of as normal, more normal plants that bees feed on like dandelions and some mustards that flower pretty early. And the bees will start really collecting a lot of food and using that food to, um, uh, to feed even more um, larvae. And by May, you can have really a lot of worker bees in a colony. And then sometime in May or early June, uh, mature honeybee hives are going to start producing new queens. And those, those new queens actually, um, uh, uh, if a hive produces a few new queens, then the, the new queens will uh, more or less compete for ownership of the hive. And the older queen takes off with a third or maybe a half of the workers in the hive, um, that, that's a swarm when the old queen takes off with, with, with the workers and they'll be looking for a new place to nest. So May and June in the Denver Boulder area is, is actually the, the time of year when you'll see just a lot of swarms around and uh, you'll have new honeybee colonies then popping up you know, mostly in hollow trees, but also sometimes they'll find cavities in buildings where they can nest. Um, uh, you know, in, if you've left a large container upside down in your garden that they can get into, they may actually find bees nesting in um, like a upside down half barrel, that kind of thing. There's so many questions that I that I want to ask you based on what you just said because they're such cool little creatures but let's start off with this swarm that you mentioned most recently mm -hmm. I think a lot of people haven't seen this and if you haven't and you go outside you know in mid to late spring and you hear kind of a buzzing a loud buzzing mm -hmm. noise look around and see if you can see it because it's really amazing to see a cluster of thousands of bees hanging from a branch or a rooftop eave or something like that. And you don't have to worry about them. They're looking for a place to live. They're not looking to sting people. Yeah, yeah, the, definitely um, you'll more often hear them before you see them. And even though there'll be thousands of bees in this swarm, because the bees are kind of match the color of branches of a tree and so on, it can be a little bit, and sometimes they're kind of high up. They can be a little bit difficult to spot, but um, with a little persistence, you, know, you hear that loud, really almost like a roar of the bees humming um, the, that time of year. Um, uh, look at this, look for the swarm. Um, as some people will get a little concerned when they see a swarm in their yard, but really the bees are just pausing there to rest. They're on the way to finding a, a place to nest, which may actually be a few hundred yards away from wh where the swarm has landed. Uh, usually a swarm isn't in a spot for more than two or three days until they, they take off to their new home, and sometimes less than 24 hours. Um, beekeepers in May and June are really looking for swarms uh, to capture and um, 
used to establish new managed colonies. So if you know a beekeeper, they'll definitely want to learn about where swarms are. And I'm guessing there's probably Facebook pages and things like that for people that are beekeepers. And so you could advertise that if you were lucky enough to see a swarm. It's a really cool thing to see. Mm -hmm. So that brings up kind of a related point. The swarm has the old queen in it and they're, they're relocating. They're basically moving to a new home. Yeah. And the, the queen is the reproductive female and all those worker bees, those are the ones that you would see outside, you know, foraging or cruising around, whatever they're doing. Those are all females, but they're not reproductive females. So bee biology is really kind of different from that of most other animals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're used to basically every animal we see being a potentially reproductive animal. And uh, in a honeybee hive, it's just the queen. Um, sometimes a year, the males, which are, are drones, but mostly... Uh, tens of thousands of sterile worker bees, which are all female. Right, right. And then they only mate in the summer. Do I recall that correctly, Mike? Right. So, so when the old queen leaves uh, with the swarm, then um, the, the, the ultimately there's going to be one new queen in that hive. And she needs to mate in order to be able to lay the eggs for new new workers. Uh, so uh, she'll fly out from the hive and um, the, um, go to locations where there are lots of drones. And uh, a new honeybee queen is going to mate in the range of five to maybe up to 20 times uh, within the span of a few days. Um, when she's very young. Uh, and uh, she stores the semen from those matings to use throughout her lifespan, which can be five years or even longer. But she never mates again after that um, initial mating period when uh, in the very early stages of her adult life. And so then back to the workers, there can be, like you said, thousands of these sterile females that are doing all of the work of the hive, whereas yeah. the female is, is making the babies, but the workers are doing all the work. And yeah. they are really capable of learning some um, sort of astounding pieces of information about their environment. And so maybe you could talk about some of the, the cool studies that have been done showing what they're capable of learning. Oh, yeah. The, the, um, it, you know, most, most animals that we encounter are highly intelligent and we sometimes as humans don't give animals as much credit as we should for being great at learning and problem solving, um, counting, you know, those things that we think of as being, uh, uh, you know, kind of some people think that humans are elevated because we can do those things, but really, uh, so many other animals can as well. Um, uh, honeybee workers are just champions at uh, forming a mental map of, the, of their surroundings. They, they can learn landmarks. Um, uh, uh, you know, if you imagine 
this worker honeybee, which is like half an inch, well, half an inch or a little bit more in length, um, the flying a mile away from its colony in order to find food and um, contending with winds that might uh, blow, its off, blow it, uh, it off its route and then being able to fly back. It's, it's really, um, it's a navigational feat that actually is, uh, just exceeds you know, what a normal human can do um, in terms of finding their way around a, an environment. You know, if you think about that relative scale of movement, um, uh, they, they actually have several layers of information they use in, in getting around in the world. Um, uh, one of them is forming what we call a cognitive map of, um, of their landscape. Uh, so, uh, like I said, learning landmarks and uh, then being able to use that knowledge of landmarks to relate what they can see with where, where they're trying to fly to. Um, uh, but they, they also, um, on a sunny day, use um, a pattern of polarization of light in the sky, which we actually can't see. Uh, it's just not a, a sensory mode that's available to us, but they, uh, the sky looks very patterned to a honeybee worker, and it can use that pattern. Um, uh, in orienting and flying back and forth uh, to flowers. Uh, another um, kind of cool area in which they're really, really good learners is of course scent, where um, uh, they have magnificent abilities to learn the odors of different flowers, but they also use a lot of scents within the colony. Um, they, they use odor to tell bees that belong in the colony from bees that don't belong in the colony. And also in order to um, assess colony condition and shape the kind of work they do. So can they use scent, Mike, to find parasites that might be infecting their nest? Um, sometimes they can use scents to detect parasites, but uh, evolution uh, uh, has equipped a lot of parasites to smell very much like a bee. Mm, mm. And so, um, and that's just an, an interesting thing overall is that oftentimes, not just in bees, but in many different species, a parasite will use a chemical camouflage in order to evade the defenses of the animal it's trying to parasitize. Sure, and that makes sense in a honeybee hive because it's gonna be dark in there. And so exactly. sight wouldn't make, be much of a, a help for finding them. And so I know a lot of our listeners are aware of and concerned about honeybee declines. And mm -hmm. talk about some of the factors involved in that. Sure, so um, it's definitely become much more difficult to keep and maintain honeybees um, than it was, say, 30 years ago. Um, uh, uh, honey, if you're trying to keep bees, you face a whole set of challenges that 
um, uh, you just wouldn't have imagined a few decades ago in, in terms of, of beekeeping. Um, uh, and, you know, what there's been a lot of commentary, and it's definitely true that um, uh, honeybee populations have declined in many places, and beekeepers have suffered massive losses of honeybees. Um, and those, those massive losses of honeybees are, uh, you know, they have an economic impact, of course, for a beekeeper, but they also have ecological impacts because we depend on, on honeybees for what we call ecosystem services. Um, uh, you know, mostly for pollination, but also for other important ecosystem roles that, that honey, honeybees have. So when, when they decline, when honeybees decline, it's actually a concern for, uh, the, you know, the, uh, for food production, for human use, and um, economic welfare in a, in a lot of human communities. Um, there's no one factor that we can just say, okay, this is what's causing honeybees to decline. So we can solve this or improve this situation by doing this specific thing. There's a lot of factors. Um, uh, among those that I think about a lot, uh, changes in land use patterns have very much impacted bees. Uh, pesticide usage and herbicide usage very much impact bees. Um, there are parasites, um, mites in particular, that have had huge effects on bee problems. And there are also viral diseases that have huge effects. Uh, so um, to break those, those down a little bit, um, if you just think about Boulder County, uh, say in real time back into like the 1970s, uh, much of the eastern half of Boulder County uh, was agricultural land. It, it was irrigated, a lot of it, and a lot of alfalfa was grown, which is actually pretty perfect for honeybees. Um, uh, there tends to be less pesticide usage on, on alfalfa, and um, uh, alfalfa flowers really well. The fact that it was irrigated produced a lot of what we call bee pasture. Um, uh, those agricultural practices have just pretty much disappeared from Boulder County, and what we've replaced that with is a lot of land that's been paved or where people are growing turf grass, and turf grass and concrete are really, I don't think, any different for, for honeybee. There's nothing there, whether you've paved it or are growing turf grass, there's nothing there for, for a honeybee in terms of food. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, when we look at our urban, suburban, um, uh, kind of suburban ranchette uh, sort of environment in Boulder County, one thing I think people should be asking themselves is how can I convert part of this environment 
into something that is be hospitable. Um, you know, can I grow some plants that actually um, provide food for bees? Uh, can I um, uh, irrigate those plants so that they become uh, a reliable source of nectar for and pollen for honeybees? So, you know, the, I think that's a, a good set of questions. Uh, another set of questions that I would just ask to anybody who's living in a place like Boulder County or anywhere really along the Front Range is do you really need to use herbicides and pesticides in your yard? Okay, like what is the justification for employing those chemicals? Um, whatever you're trying to kill, can you coexist with that? Okay, because Every time you apply an herbicide or a pesticide, you're having consequences for non-target species. You're, you're having consequences for, the, um, uh, for things like bees that actually where, like I said, we rely on their ecosystem services, okay? So, so then moving on quickly to parasites, and the viral diseases, um, those are issues for honeybees that really beekeepers need to address through their beekeeping practices. I can tell you that the way those things got spread around the world um, over the last few decades was by uh, beekeepers shipping bees all over the world. Um, and, you know, if we could move back in time, I think we'd have better quarantine processes so that um, the parasites and um, viral diseases wouldn't have gotten moved around the world in that way. But the genie's out of that bottle and uh, beekeepers just need to adapt. Um, there are uh, some um, uh, what I would call genetic solutions uh, to those, those problems that our scientists are working on where they're trying to develop strains of bees that are more resistant to uh, parasites and diseases. And maybe those, those things will come to fruition and help beekeepers to be able to manage their hives more easily. Mike, this has been really fascinating and we just scratched the surface, but unfortunately we're out of time for this week. Uh oh, okay. So maybe we can have you back on and continue this fascinating subject because I know people love hearing about bees. So thank you so much for your time. Great, and well, thank you. That was Mike Breed talking about honeybee biology and their conservation. You can find out more about the plants they thrive on at the CSU Extension website. I provide a link giving a thorough list of Colorado flowers that attract and feed bees on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the current executive producer and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.